Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm super excited to be joined today by Dr. Judy Stella, who is the head of health standards and research here at Good Dog, and also by Dr. Erin Runkin. She's the associate professor of clinical theriogenology and reproductive medicine at The Ohio State University, where she also earned her veterinary degree. And she completed her residency in Therio at the University of Florida and as a diplomat at the American College of Theriogenologists. So, Erin, I am thrilled to have you come. And we're going to talk about actually what is a specialist? What is a theriogenologist, other than it's a really long word? And then we're going to kind of roll into high-risk pregnancies and some of the things that we can do to monitor those. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very thrilled to be here and to be able to help everybody to learn more about the wonderful, magical world of theriogenology. It is a very long word and will help you win at Scrabble if played the appropriate way. (laughs) Love it. For most people, they have no clue what the word means. And so oftentimes we will just say we are veterinary reproductive specialists. And so what that means is most people are very familiar with a veterinary specialist. They know what a cardiologist is, or they know what a veterinary oncologist, a cancer doctor is. But what a lot of people don't realize is there is a specialty just for reproduction. And so we are basically the veterinary equivalent of an andrologist, a gynecologist, so your OBGYN, a fertility doctor. And a pediatrician, neonatologist, all rolled into one. So we have many hats that we wear, but our main goal is producing baby animals of whatever species we're into, in my case, obviously, with puppies, and helping Mother Nature when they need a little help, basically. Right, right. And so I think an important piece for people to understand is that specialists of any stripe, whether it be oncology or theriogenology, put in extra time, extra years of study. So can you talk to that just a little bit? Absolutely. So once we do our normal four-year veterinary degree, so every veterinarian that graduates from a veterinary school will have a diploma that calls them a veterinarian. So either a DVM or a VMD, they are a licensed veterinarian. For those with a special interest in a particular discipline or they want to focus in a particular area, have the option to go on and become a specialist. And so um, what that means is oftentimes it is more advanced education, either in the form of a formal training program, like an internship or a residency, which people are very familiar with on the human side. We do the same thing. So we'll go and do an internship followed by a residency. An internship is usually one year long. And the residency, for Therio anyway, is anywhere from two to three years in length, where you are at 
most often a university and you are intensely involved in only reproductive cases. So you are learning how to manage these cases. You are often conducting research. We're required to have a publication. So we are researching these conditions and we are basically learning all of the very intricate details of one specific field versus a generalist like your general practitioner that knows a lot about everything. We are getting the nitty gritty, very specific details in one subject field. So I joke with the students that I became a specialist so that way I could delete most of my brain capacity for other things and only focus on the subject I really liked, which was reproduction. See, I'm, I think you have really hit on something. I'm definitely running with that. <laughs> exactly. And then following our formal residency training, then we sit a very rigorous exam. So we have our board exam that we sit as a veterinarian. And then after our internship and residency, we then sit another board exam, this time just for our specialty college. And so in our case, it's a two-day long exam consisting of multiple choice, essay questions, a practical portion, and it's very rigorous examination. <laughs> and we are tested on all domestic species for ours. So oh, wow. horses, dogs, cats, cows, we have to have a general reproductive knowledge on. And then we have the option of focusing on one particular species if we so desire or taking a general exam. Mm -hmm. Once we pass that exam and the pass rate is usually anywhere from 30 to 70%, depending on the wow. year, then we are recognized by our college as long as we have fulfilled the other requirements, the publication and so on. If we don't pass, which is very common, then we have to wait an entire year to take it again. And so it's very stressful and it's very difficult. And so it's wonderful when you finally see the light and you pass and you get that certificate, you get to stand there with your peers, you've read all of their work, right. <laughs> you know, preparing. It's a wonderful, wonderful accomplishment. And so all of the specialists have worked very, very hard to become experts in their field right. for what they've done. And I think listeners, if anyone has encountered this, you hear boarded, like it's a boarded or it's boarded oncology. And this is what that's a shorthand for is yes. this testing that you were just talking about. That's okay. correct. So boarded means that we are board certified. That tells the other people that we have sat an exam that has been validated by the college of specialists mm -hmm. to say that, yes, if you pass this exam, that means you are a specialist. And it's important designation because there are practitioners who have a special interest in a variety of specialties, reproduction is very common, they are very, very good at what they do. And they are just as knowledgeable as people who are board certified. But that designation of board certified states that we did in fact pass an exam and have passed the credentials to say that we are a board certified specialist. So it's a different designation that just says we've gone above and beyond the normal veterinary practitioner route to focus in this one area. Good. I think that's important because there's a lot of great repro people very, that I've worked with over Very, the years. very great And people very few of them are theriogenologists. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful field because you don't have to be board certified to be a wonderful person with special interest in reproduction. Some of my very good friends are not boarded and they're fabulous reproductive veterinarians. And so that's what's so great about what our specialty is because we get to work alongside 
people who are still in general practice and have this unique perspective on what we are working with. I am in a university setting, but our practice here runs very much like a private practice. Mm -hmm. And then there are boarded individuals who are in private practice. And we all have a wonderful, unique perspective on our clients and our breeders that we work with. And we can all come together and work towards a common goal, which is awesome. Excellent. So in your residency down there in Florida, you did a lot of focus on high-risk pregnancy and you started, you said, in equine and kind of have transitioned over to the canine side. So talk to us about what exactly is a high-risk pregnancy. Many folks are not familiar with the concept that dogs just don't have babies under the porch, right? (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So it's important. I tell my clients all the time, 95% of the time, everything will go just fine. It's the 5% is why I'm here. And so a high-risk pregnancy is, by definition, any condition that happens that jeopardizes either the mother or the offspring during a pregnancy. So it's a very broad term. Something as simple as a very large litter size is enough to be considered a high-risk pregnancy. A very small litter size, a singleton, could be considered a high-risk pregnancy depending on the situation. Breed can make it more high risk. For instance, our brachycephalic friends, they are more high risk than your street mutt that gets pregnant. They're going to have 13 puppies with no problems, you know, but when we have our breed. Under the porch, but it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. We have a little more challenge ahead of us. And so that can be high risk. And then we get into the serious things that we think of, things like gestational diabetes, pregnancy toxemia, bitches that are ill with another disease, a viral disease or a fungal disease or a tick-borne illness, bitches that are hit by a car or have trauma, Mm -hmm. all of those things can make a pregnancy high risk. So there's a couple there that I think are interesting to kind of follow down the rabbit hole if we could. And I say they're interesting only because they're ones I haven't already experienced. So So I want to learn more. So pregnancy, diabetes, I mean, we know it exists in women. Talk to us about that in our canine population and what does it look like? What are our symptoms? You know, all of that management piece. So very fortunately for us as dog breeders, gestational diabetes in dogs is extremely rare. It is something that is talked about. We have case reports of, I get probably a phone call a year from a referring veterinarian with a case of it but it is very, very uncommon to have true gestational diabetes. It tends to run in Nordic breeds. There's been case studies where they've looked through families. They find it more often in breeds like Norwegian elk hounds, where they have seen a link, a genetic link in those particular breeds. But again, very, very low incidence in the majority of our bitches. Clinical signs that we would look for would be the same as a non-pregnant animal with diabetes. So excessive thirst, excessive urination not wanting to eat, not feeling well, and certainly developing the diabetes can then progress into a more serious disease, which is diabetic ketoacidosis. And so that is when they're very, very ill. If it's caught early and we can catch these girls at the very first signs of problems, they can be managed. We can manage them with insulin the same way that we would manage a non-pregnant animal. But the longer they remain pregnant with the diabetes, the higher of the risk of them continuing to be diabetic after whelp. 
So because of that, in severe instances, we may actually recommend terminating the pregnancy in order to get that bitch to be normal glycemic as fast as possible so that she doesn't go on to continue to be diabetic throughout her life. But that is a you know worst case scenario mm-hmm. type thing. They will respond to insulin. We can treat them with insulin and hopefully get them as close to term as possible so that then we, we can rescue the litter. Right. The litter also will have issues. They tend to have fetal oversize. So the puppies get too big, basically, in these cases. And so oftentimes we are going to intervene with elective cesarean mm-hmm. in those cases. But again, very, very uncommon thing that we right. have in dogs, right. much less than in humans. Strange and wonderful things that happen to girl dogs. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. And pregnancy toxemia. Let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. That I don't think is common either, but still maybe more than diabetes or no? Yeah. So pregnancy toxemia is a lot more common. And basically it's a fancy term for the fact that the bitch is not meeting her caloric intake requirements. So her body shifts its metabolism and starts to use a different metabolic pathway, which makes her sick. So we see this commonly in bitches with huge litters that aren't eating well in the end of pregnancy. So you know, your Labrador with 12 puppies that she's milking like a dairy cow and she's just not eating anymore. And so they shift their metabolism to draw calories from elsewhere in their body. And so what ends up happening is they get very ill. They stop eating altogether. They start vomiting. In severe cases, it can progress. They actually become comatose or start seizing as a result of the ketones in their body. That would be very, very severe cases. Usually we catch it in the early phases when they're often vomiting and just not doing well. Good breeders obviously know they're bitches. And so they'll Mm -hmm. call and say, hey, she's off. Something is not right. And we get Mm -hmm. them in right away. The other side of that coin would be the bitches that are not given the appropriate or quantity of food during gestation. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're not cared for particularly well. They're on a very, very low income. They're eating very poor quality food. Sometimes they're just fed table scraps and nothing is balanced for them. Then very, very thin bitches can also develop it. But I would say it's more so a disease of the big, big litters is what we Mm -hmm. tend to see. Mm -hmm. Yes. Having just this summer whelped a litter of 13 German wire-haired pointers, I can (laughs) speak to this. Um, Very hard to keep them eating. (laughs) We're not even going to go into that litter. Uh, it It was a lot. It was a lot of things. So with high-risk pregnancies, you mentioned some of the risk factors, including brachycephalic. So let's talk a little bit about some of the brachycephalic breeds and where you see those encountering issues in terms of a high-risk pregnancy sort of situation. Absolutely. So our poster child brachycephalic is the bulldog. So any of our happy-go-lucky, smushy-faced breeds qualify. So big heads, big shoulders tiny little pelvises. And so because we've bred them to look a certain way, we've actually decreased or even in some cases eliminated their ability to give birth naturally because of a certain design and what we want them to look like ideally for their breed. And so because of that, it is very difficult for them to free whelp. Now it can be done. I have a breeder of Frenchies that she prides herself in the fact that she runs a very nice kennel and all of her bitches free whelp. It's very well done. And I applaud her for that. I have had a few bulldog clients that free well. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the statistics, a very, very high proportion of those pregnancies during whelping will end up in a dystocia or a difficult birth, a stuck puppy. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's somewhere between 80 and 90% if you look at the number of C-sections that we do on those particular breeds. Now, some of those are elective. They choose to do C-sections in order to keep everybody safe and happy. And so as a brachycephalic, because we know of that high risk of delivery, we can classify their pregnancy as actually being high risk. Not that the mother can't gestate and do everything normally. It's just when we know it's time for her to go into labor, we want to have an emergency plan set up of either we're just going to go ahead and do an elective Mm C-section. So we need to have very good breeding management in that front Mm -hmm. end. So we know when she's due. I'll take this moment to say that a due date is based off of ovulation timing in terms of this, not a breeding date, because a breeding date alone, we have about a two week window of whelping date. So this is from progesterone timing or LH testing. So we know exactly when that's done. Right. And so we can do an elective C-section, which has a great outcome for mom and babies, or we can let her go into labor and get her in then for a C-section, which some owners choose to do. But if that's the case, you want to be sure you have a very good relationship with an emergency referral center near you that is willing to be able to get those C-sections done in a timely manner and that you're not getting in and you're behind three hit by cars and now your Mm -hmm. bitch has to wait four or five hours to have her C-section done. So if you're a lover of these breeds, I strongly recommend having a great relationship with a veterinarian you trust so that Mm -hmm. way you can plan these appropriately. Absolutely. My partner breeds pugs. I have German wire hair pointers. He has pug dogs. So we get all the, (laughs) and yes, stuck puppies are definitely a thing. (laughs) Can we touch on a thing? And this is a little bit me squirreling down, but I think it's an interesting, again, rabbit hole to dig into. When we talk about plan C-sections versus free whelping. And this is a touchy topic, right? Like everybody's got a really strong opinion about it. Your thoughts as a theriogenologist and your experience based on all your clinical work, when you are breeding dogs, if free whelping is your goal, do you limit your ability to have free whelping bitches if you rely on always having C-sections? So that's a great topic. And I think that elective C-sections are a great tool. I think that- I use a lot of them. They're very useful, especially when you have those giant litters where you know you don't do something, you're going to be there in the middle of the night. I think if it's important for your breeding program that you have free whelpers, then you need to know what you're working with. It's very difficult to select bitches for your next generation if you don't know that they're good mothers that they've come from. So if you are only doing C-sections and not allowing them to whelp and then trying to select the next generation, you select your replacement bitch. She has a C-section. You have so on. Now you have five generations of C-sections. You've never let them free whelp. You really don't know what their capabilities are in that area. And so I highly recommend selecting for fertility and selecting for mothering ability. So obviously we have breeds that can't free whelp and that's perfectly fine. We can work with that but you need a good mama <laughs> and you, to be able to take care of those babies. And we need to be selecting for mamas that have good size litters. What I'm seeing the most is, especially with our show dog or confirmation lines, is we are selecting for doing well in the show ring at a young age, which is fabulous. But then we are breeding the number one X breed to the number one dog in that breed. And we are getting small litter sizes. And then we're taking a puppy from that and breeding to the next champion. And we're breeding to the next top 10 winner. And our litter sizes are going down and down and down and down. So we, of course, have to select our breeding pairs based off of 
whatever our important criteria are for our program. But we also need to always kind of keep in the back of our mind that fertility part of it. So that way we can keep our lines going. Because a lot of breeders I work with are kind of stuck in a corner where they've been selecting and doing so well with their programs. And now we have a fertility block because of kind of where they bottlenecked. And so sometimes we get, for instance, breeds that should be able to free whelp. And now every bitch that comes in from those lines, now we're doing C-sections for uterine inertia. So I think it's very important to remember that fertility is something we can select for or against. And so to keep that in mind when we're choosing our breeding stock. That's really where I wanted to go to, is that is a genetic piece. (laughs) And you really do need to pay attention to it. And you know, I've used C-sections. My family started in clumber spaniels. Trust me, I understand you're in inertia. Yes. <laughs> okay, like I get it. But by the end of my mother's 30-year breeding program, all of her bitches free whelped. Wonderful. And that's a great illustration of how selection can help you with that because right. it can be done. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, can it, be done. it can be done even with the most difficult breeds. So that yeah. was really my point I wanted to go to. So final piece on this intervention, we've talked about C-sections, clearly. Are there other intervention tools that you can work with? Say, for example, other people I've talked with, my own personal experience, we've talked about progesterone dropping prematurely. Great. And managing that. You want to touch on that a little bit? Because I think that's one that a lot of people miss. Sure. Are we talking about normal progesterone dropping at the end of pregnancy or are the abnormal that happens in the middle? Where you have to supplement progesterone to keep your litter in the bitch. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. So when the progesterone falls too soon, that is a condition that is known as hypoluteoidism. True hypoluteoidism is very rare. So usually if we are having abnormal dropping of progesterone in mid-gestation, to the point that a bitch would abort from it. There's usually an inciting cause, a uterine infection or something along those lines. Some bitches have what's known as an irritable uterus. So it's a condition we know about in humans, happens in bitches too. Their uteruses are hyperactive and they start contracting weeks before they're supposed to. And those bitches, the uterus will start contracting before the progesterone starts to fall. And if she has a history of that, we can actually use things like uterine monitoring or whelp-wise, as many of you guys are familiar with, to identify those bitches, treat them with medication before we ever get to the point of progesterone falling. In a lot of places, we don't have that luxury. There's no whelp-wise system that we have. So we have to go off of our clinical signs. And so when bitches don't conceive or we, we have a negative pregnancy check, I always check a progesterone level at that time that she's checked open at her ultrasound. Because if her progesterone is not where it should be, then that could give us a indication that perhaps this is a problem with her and we can start monitoring much earlier in her subsequent pregnancy. Oh, that's very um, interesting. Okay. That's good. To what know. I have found with hypoluteoidism is it tends to run in lines. So mm-hmm. we have bitches that have had low progesterone levels produce daughters that also mm-hmm. have low progesterone levels. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. And then it seems to be some lines of breeds. So we have some mastiff lines. We see it pretty consistently in English mastiffs. We see it in a couple lines of Vishla that we work with. So it's there. And breeders that know their lines say, hey, we've had a problem with this in the past. Let's bring them in. And we start checking progesterone weekly, generally. Mm-hmm. Right. Having lived through it and watched someone else and helped them catch it early, I think it's something that just anecdotally, I think it's out there. 
I really do. So I think that's the thing to watch. Can you talk about the symptoms that you're going to see when a bitch is starting to perhaps have a struggle with this, with the progesterone dropping too early? Sure. So many times we don't see anything. We just have a bitch come up open on her ultrasound. We'll check a progesterone level at that time, and it'll be much too low to maintain a pregnancy. Now, what is too low? That is up for debate. We know that physiologically, the bitch has to have a progesterone level over two to maintain a pregnancy. So that's the bare minimum. There has been some research that has shown a suggestion of lower progesterone levels and higher loss of puppies in the litter. So during the time point, I have a table that I use that has reference ranges for each day of gestation that I can compare to. And it helps me to decide if we need to start checking more frequently, basically. If I start getting progesterone levels that are very low in the single digits and mid-gestation, that's going to be very concerning. And we're going to need to monitor that truly closely. The other thing that's important with progesterone supplementation is you want to be very certain that the bitch needs it before you give it because it's not benign. It's not a simple, you know, like, oh, we're just giving her an aspirin or something like that. It is a serious condition because if you give progesterone too early before day 45 of gestation, you will actually masculinize female fetuses. Mm -hmm. So the fetuses will come out with ambiguous genitalia. The female puppies will look more like a male. So their vulvas will be in a different location and they most likely are not going to be fertile as a result of that. So you do not want to just arbitrarily give bitches progesterone that don't need it. If she truly needs it, then we have several options. We can use micronized progesterone, which is a human formulation that we get from the pharmacy. And we actually titrate the dose that she's on to a normal progesterone profile. So it's (laughs) very expensive. I'm just going to say, that's not how I've done it. So that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it is the safest way that we can do it because we can actually create exactly how much progesterone she needs. I like it. If that's not an option for financial reasons or location or ability to get same day progesterone, as simple as that, then we try to get her as far into pregnancy as we can, hopefully past that 45 day point. And then we have options of Altrenagest, which is Regumate, which is an mm-hmm. equine drug, or we have progesterone and oil injections. And so those are two other options that we have. And most breeders are familiar with the Regumate, which is the liquid that they take. That's what one the nice thing about the Regumate is that we can diagnose if she truly does have hypoluteism because it doesn't cross-react with our assay. So we give the drug, we can follow her progesterone and see, look, her serum progesterone is actually 0.5 today. Thank goodness we have it on the regimen. But we also have to be sure we stop it in enough time before whelping. Otherwise, we have issues with mothering ability. They don't come into milk very well. And it can cause issues with whelping as well. So it's a slippery slope. It's very valuable if you can identify it. And it's a true thing to treat because we do have options. But it's, again, another one of those conditions where you want to have a great relationship with your veterinarian your veterinarian so that you trust your veterinarian and your veterinarian trusts you and being able to say that something is off. Any discharge in mid to late pregnancy that has a color, get them in right away because that's never a good sign. That is the one I was aiming for. (laughs) Actually, the person who taught me about this was a boarded theriogenologist that I was fortunate enough to work with in Nebraska. Wonderful. And we saved a litter that way. So it has become sort of a bug in the back of my head and it's the discharge piece, right? That's the one that I always, if it's not clear, we're going in. Absolutely. And that's a great way 
The only time that could have even a tinge of color is about that last week. But otherwise, it should never be opaque at any point. Never green, brown. brown is bad. Or- Trust me, brown is bad. Brown is bad. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, brown <laughs> is always bad. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. Well, Erin, thank you so much. I love talking to you, to people like you, because I always want to know the answers to these questions. And I always want other people to be able to access that knowledge. And so thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is g-o-o-d-d-o-g dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.